Happy New Year and welcome back to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I am one of your hosts, Brian Namsanstein, and this is our first episode of 2022. This also marks, unbelievably, five years of Beyond Prisons, and we are kicking it off with an interview with Gio Maher about his new book, A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. But before we dive in, I wanted to say that Kim and I are so incredibly grateful for everyone's support and for the wonderful folks who joined us as guests over the years. We're really excited for the episodes we're planning this year, but we wanted to remind you that we have a fairly extensive back catalog of episodes stretching back to 2017 as well. If you're newer to the show, welcome and thanks for listening. And we encourage you to check out some of our older episodes as well. If you appreciate Beyond Prisons and you have some money to spare, if you share our episodes with your friends and family, if you use it in your classes or in your organization, please consider helping us make sure we can continue the show by making a donation or subscribing at beyond-prisons.com slash donate. That is beyond-prisons.com slash donate. Now on to the good stuff. Today, Kim and I are joined by Gio Maher for a wide-ranging conversation around his new book, A World Without Police. The three of us touch on a number of subjects, including the context in which the book was written, abolitionist strategy, cops and labor unions, and how Gio's experiences in Venezuela influenced his work. We also touch on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's comment on abolition as a suburb and rhetorical strategies within the mainstream, as well as examples of bottom-up abolitionist organizing around the world. Geo tells us how we should understand strong community as something beyond resources and institutions, the project of abolishing police and the border as being one and the same, and a whole lot more. If you want to stay up on the show, if you want to follow us and make sure that you're catching all the latest episodes, you can subscribe to us wherever you're listening. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well. And you can check out our website, beyond-prisons.com, for more information on the show and some of the projects we worked on over the years. With that being said, thank you for listening, and here is our interview with Gio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to finally be able to talk with you, especially about this book uh, that you just came out with, A World Without Police. I've got it right here. Um, I thought maybe a good place to start is, you know, a lot of um, we've seen sort of like a groundswell in publications of books dealing with policing and abolitionism. And I was just, you know, curious to hear from you, you know, what was the impetus for writing this? And more specifically, you know, who did you want to write it for? Who was your imagined audience for this book? So this book has actually been kind of in the works for a while. Um, You know, I really started thinking seriously about it in 2015, 2016. Um, And at that moment, um, as you all know, you know, talking about abolition, you know, it, you know, was an emerging narrative and an emerging framework. But talking about police abolition was actually very new and just barely hitting the mainstream in the aftermath of kind of Ferguson and Baltimore. Um, and and that's really what got me thinking about putting the book together. I've been doing you know this kind of organizing for for a decade, but really sitting down and writing about it was was a different thing. Um, and the way that the book was initially uh, conceived was 
really, I don't want to call it from a defensive perspective, but from the perspective of having to try to inject something into mainstream discourse that wasn't already there. Um, but by the time the book was actually being written, and, and by the time, of course, the, you know, the Minneapolis rebellions kicked off, that that, you know, scene had changed dramatically. All of a sudden, you know, things that were just sort of fringe ideas when it comes to police abolition in particular, um, talking about the concrete, you know, uh, you know, mechanics of a world without police, of abolishing the police, of building communities that would be, uh, you know, impervious to policing. Um, this was already, you know, this was suddenly uh, very much part of the mainstream discourse and certainly part of, uh, you know, radical discourse on the left. Um, so that, you know, that shifted very much. Um, and, you know, as a result, the way that the book was written, uh, I think, shifted. And, I, and, and I've said this before that, you know, the book felt very late all of a sudden. It was like the rebellions popped off and it's just like, the book needs to be out there. Oh, you know, I'm feeling this kind of guilt, like, oh, this book should have been written. It should be in people's hands already. Um, but in retrospect, I'm, uh, you know, in a way grateful that I was a bit slow on it, um, on getting it done. Because the book that I think came out of the rebellions uh, is very different. Um, and I like to describe it as a sort of plateau where it's really the mass action in the streets that elevates us to a position that we can then look a bit further into the distance, think a bit harder about what it is that we need to do. Um, and so the, you know, as a result of that platform provided by the Minneapolis rebellions, I hope that this book is able to, to see a bit further. Absolutely. I yeah, and I, I I was wondering about that too because you know I, I I wasn't sure obviously when you started writing the book. Uh, it's it's very interesting to hear that it was actually around 2015, and then as it was starting to come together around 2020, you know obviously the mass action in the street kind of opened up, you know not only more possibilities but also provided I think more of a language and a framework for the readers probably as well. Um, you know. I don't know, again, if by the time 2020 rolled around, maybe the drafts were already done or whatever, but I'm curious, you know, did the book change at all um, in those final moments as that was happening? Uh, or is this pretty much what you had conceived when you started? It was mostly written in 2020, uh, you know, beginning before the rebellions and finishing mm -hmm. uh, afterward. And if you look at like the table of contents, it didn't shift that much. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, again, the content and particularly the chapters on um, experiments in the U.S., particularly mm -hmm. the that draw upon what happened in the streets in Minneapolis, um, were you know were very much uh, infused with what had already happened, and and I think overall the biggest shift had you know was one of tone, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly, it, you know, the tone was I don't want to say optimistic. I think that's a that's a sort of you know wrongheaded framing, um, but you know uh, it's certainly infused with a kind of energy, um, and specifically infused with uh, you know something that Mariam Kaba has emphasized, which is the need to maintain that energy um and, and this is i think something that you know if we're talking about the temporality of the book you know coming out uh, you know uh you know in the context of the the minneapolis rebellion a year later you know we're going to be looking you know we're looking at a very different context totally. uh, we're looking at a context of counterinsurgency we're looking at a context in which um the powers that be want us to forget what seemed possible in in june of, of 2020. Um, and so that's, I think, now a different context in which um, we still can draw upon that energy of the streets, but also it's a process of remembering that energy, of remembering that possibility and the openness uh, and the revolutionary fervor that was spreading very quickly, not only across the country, but across the globe. We can't forget that people were tearing down statues in the UK, in South Africa, in Europe, all because of the, the sort of bravery shown in the streets of Minneapolis. Definitely. 
let's dive right in um, to some of the subject matter of the book. There's a lot uh, in here to talk about. Obviously, we won't go over all of it because we want to leave some uh, mystery for people who haven't read it yet so that they feel enticed to. Um, but I wanted to start off with one of the, the chapters in the book that really spoke to me um, and the discussions in the book that really spoke to me was the way that you approach the issue of so-called police unions. I think this is something... You know, especially, um, you know, in the last definitely in the last two years, but even more than that, three to five years, I think this has been uh, an issue that a lot of people on the left has sort of struggled with conceptually. Um, and, you know, I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you view so-called police unions or fraternities or associations. Um, you know, uh, just to quote a section on page 101, you write, as a result of their non-union status, not to mention their function as means of social control, police orders and associations developed in isolation from the broader labor movement and instead collaborated with commanders and city leaders eager to grant them special privileges. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about this part of the book and how would you answer the question that we often hear of, you know, are cops workers? And if they're not, what are they? What, what's a better way to view them in relation to labor? Certainly. And, you know, so when I talk about, you know, the the goal of, of using, you know, allowing this book to see a bit further and think harder about mechanics, uh, you know, a piece of that is also thinking harder about strategy. Um, we, we've been blessed with a, a wealth of abolitionist literature. Um, but I think the task at, at this point is really to, you know, to think about what is to be done, as it were. Um, what, you know, what are the struggles? How do they unfold? What kind of steps concretely need to be taken? So it's not only a question of the mechanics of kind of building that alternative world, it's also the mechanics of fighting against the world that exists. And, and so, you know, one thing, of course, that I really uh, draw attention to and emphasize is this, you know, role that police unions play, which on the one hand, I think is, you know, unrecognized, even by many on the left, um, it's something that I think even liberals would be scandalized by and, and that revolutionaries and radicals, you know, need to understand and take uh, seriously, but which, um, you know, is, you know, in many ways, as you, as you described, hamstrung by this question of, uh, you know, the, the union status of uh, police organizations and associations. Um, you know, police aren't workers, right? They are, you know, as George Orwell put it, the natural enemies of the working class. They've always broken up and destroyed working class movements. Um, and on top of that, they've always upheld uh, white supremacist power structures. And of course, in the United States in particular, these two are fused uh, together. It is precisely by upholding white supremacy that working class power is systematically fractured, disintegrated, and, and weakened and prevented from coalescing. So these two functions that the police uphold and, and their unions in particular um, really make it uh, on a no-brainer, you know, no-brainer to on an analytic level, I think, say police unions are not unions. The problem is that they exist within union federations. The problem is that there is resistance within the mainstream union movement um, to uh, pushing back on the power of police and first, you know, first and foremost, expelling them from uh, the federations like the AFL-CIO, Teamsters, and, and others. Um, the, you know, there are a few arguments that are made. One is, uh, no matter what it is that police do, um, if we are trying to bring sort of oversight, public scrutiny, accountability into 
uh, sectors of the labor movement were providing ammunition for the right to use against teachers unions, to use against other public sector unions. I, I mean, there are many things that can be said, one of which is that the right doesn't need ammunition to use against teachers unions. They're attacking yeah. all the time. It doesn't <laughs> help the right that you know that you know we're fighting against police unions it doesn't give them new ammunition new arguments new weapons especially if we establish a hard line that says no police unions are not unions this is not the same thing you know teachers unions do not um you know they don't negotiate the the ability and the right to kill other union members which is what police unions uh, do um you know there are other arguments about and when it comes to like the afl-cio and the, and the big federations um Police, as well as ICE, Border Patrol, um, they are highly unionized, densely unionized sectors that bring with them resources and political influence. And this is something that union federations are not uh, interested in, in giving up. Um, but, you know, part of the argument I think that needs to be made, and this argument applies to, you know, the transnational question as well, to the question of abolishing borders, is that the potential and the opportunities that come with viewing the, the working class as a global, transnational uh, class, as a class that is fundamentally, you know, uh, and, and in its majority, you know, comprises people of color in the global south um, and in the south of the north. Um, that, that the opportunities that come with that vision far outweigh whatever drawbacks might come to expelling uh, police from labor. Um, and, you know, and the reality ultimately is that there is absolutely no way to limit police power without targeting police unions. They should be expelled from police federations. They should be outlawed. Any laws, these so-called law enforcement officers bill of rights that they push through should be repealed and withdrawn. And we should do everything within our power to really obliterate the political power of these so-called police unions. Perfect. Thank you. So I want to jump a little bit ahead uh, and talk um, a little bit about uh, what you describe in chapter six uh, on self-defense and abolition. And you open this uh, chapter by describing your uh, experience in Venezuela. And uh, I'd like to invite you to share a little bit with us about what that experience was and how that factors into the into the book. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, th this is a book that was in the works for a long time. This is a work that's obviously been influenced by many other things that I've done. And, and when I tell the kind of biographic, autobiographical backstory, often what I say and what I say in the book is the fact that, you know, beginning, you know, some 15 years ago, I was sort of living in Venezuela and then flying back and forth to Oakland, where I was doing my PhD. Um, and you know, seeing and studying, you know, these grassroots self-defense community power movements in Venezuela reminded me of, of nothing, you know, more than of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. And so I was always thinking about that parallel. And when we were doing organizing against, you know, uh, the murder of Oscar Grant uh, in, in 2009 and 10, um, you know, a lot of what we were drawing upon uh, came out of uh, the Global South, came out of Latin America. When we were talking about developing grassroots popular assemblies, what was called the Oakland Assembly, to help coordinate, you know, the struggle for justice for Oscar Grant. That was drawing directly upon ex other people's experiences as well in Oaxaca, in, you know, in, in parts of Mexico, um, in, in, you know, and what I'd seen in Venezuela uh, as well. And, you know, part of what, uh, you know, this book tries to do when, when we're talking about the world of police is to take the, the idea of that world seriously, right? We're not just talking metaphorically, we're talking about the actual world. We're talking about how policing is a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how um, the police, you know, 
across the globe, uh, you know, and of course there are nuances and complexities. Venezuela is incredibly complex when it comes to the question of the police. Um, but when we're talking about police as a professional force in a capital war capitalist world, more often than not, what the police do is protect property. And more often than not, what they protect as well is that that form of property that we call uh, whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and this is what they do in, you know, in China, in South Africa, in Venezuela as well. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that, you know, there are, again, there are differences, there are complexities in Venezuela in particular, we need to understand that kind of starting point. And on the flip side of that, what always struck me is the fact that communities are fighting globally for self-determination, for Absolutely. community power for community mm -hmm. control. And these are the antithesis of policing. So that in Venezuela, while you know, the government is trying to improve policing and, and you know, develop these sort of socialist police and actually doing very important and interesting things in the process of that, that's never going to get beyond the limitation that policing poses. And so instead of talking about that, we should be looking to um, you know, the grassroots communities that themselves come together that say we can take care of ourselves and that push the police out, that push those who commit violence out of the community as well, um, and that attempt to build something, uh, you know, uh, more, you know, uh, resilient. Um, you know, again, part of the intervention, I think that this tries to make in the contemporary abolitionist movement, um, it's not that people don't know about this, right? You know, it's not that, you know, Angela Davis and Robin Kelly and, and Ruthie Wilson Gilmore don't know about the incredibly important history of revolutionary self-defense movements in, you know, in Black America in particular. It's not that they don't, they don't know about the internationalist struggle for global self-determination against uh, imperialism. They know about that, absolutely. And that's, that's part of, those are the struggles that many of them come out of. Um, but there's something about the mainstreaming of abolition that has downplayed these questions. And, and I think it downplayed the very real need to talk about community self-defense. It, it's not magic that you somehow magically remove the police and the community mm -hmm. Uh, is self-sustaining and, and perfect and pure. No, communities need to be taken care of. Care of. They need to be defended. Um, you know, and this means not the police. It doesn't mean a professional force. Uh, you know, being imposed on the community, but it does mean that community members themselves need to come together and take responsibility for safety and security in that area. Thank you for that. And um, I want to follow up uh, that question with something else you uh, talk about in this chapter, which um, I think is really important to discuss. Uh, so uh, on page 159, you uh, describe uh, or talk about the, um, the quote that AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, said that, you know, uh, when she was asked what defunding the police would look like in practice, and her response was uh, to say, it looks like a suburb, right? So you push back against this metaphor. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your uh, your logic, your thinking there, and uh, what you say? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and there I was I was definitely building off of the, the really great work done on this already by Tamara Knopper, um, who... who mm -hmm immediately on what AOC had said. Um, and, and, you know, the first thing I think to say is that, you know, I, I get what AOC's point was, right? You know, and, and her point, of course, was to speak to sort of middle-class Americans and to say, you know what, this shouldn't be scary. This is, you know, this is familiar, right? In other words, abolition means well-resourced communities. It means, you know, communities with resources for education, for community activities, for after school, for, you know, all of these programs that, you know, that people in the suburbs enjoy, right? 
Um, and, you know, there's a reason that, you know, the least policed communities in, certain, in a certain sense uh, look the way uh, that they do. Um, but what this view misses, of course, is that the suburbs are built upon um, a history of segregation in which the police are the primary shock troops, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the police may not be on every street of, you know, the, of the, the main line of Philadelphia, uh, where I live, but they are certainly policing the boundaries of those suburbs. They're certainly yeah. scrutinizing anyone who enters into those suburbs. Um, you know, and, and, and so the question is, you know, fundamentally how you, you can't get to, you know, there's no kind of trick, um, you know, one simple trick that will allow the suburbs to become abolitionist, right? Um, I think that the question is, you know, how is it that we can make all you know all communities well well resourced um, but that means precisely tearing down the suburbs rather than sort of expanding them exactly exactly and um there's a passage on page 160 that i think is uh is worth reading and it you know touches on what you just said you said but this kind of rhetorical strategy for smuggling defunding into mainstream consciousness through the back door risks further naturalizing the very world that the police uphold. It tacitly upholds the myth that the police protect the community by preventing violent crime. It reinforces a model of for false scarcity in which we must choose to fund either the schools or the police. And more than anything, it neglects the underlying fact that rather than a solution to the problem of policing, the suburbs are the problem. Because historically speaking, the suburbs and the police are conjoined developments. And I'm like, yep, right there, right there. And again, this is something that, that Knopper art makes, you know, very, very clear, which is the idea that's like, it's not like we're choosing between the police and funding schools, right? Mm -hmm. like, is that we should always be, you know, choosing to abolish the police. We should always be, even if there were all of the funds in the world, the point is that we don't need, you know, this institution. And so that's part of the logic. Again, like I, you know, I'm someone, I think it's, you know, I think the ways in which abolitionist and defunding narratives cut into the mainstream is incredibly important and crucial mm -hmm. and at the same time mm -hmm. you know, always, you know, runs this risk. And so I think our job is less to be like, oh, you know, AOC is wrong. She doesn't get it or DSA or, you know, like the, the kind of people that are, you know, using this mm -hmm. logic, um, but just to push back on it. Right. And to say, you know what, I get what you're trying to do, but what we're trying to do is always more than this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's, you know, a valid point right there. Um, you, uh, on, a, on page 161, you uh, say something else that I also want uh, want to touch on, um, or I'd like you to touch on. You say, liberation doesn't come from above, from the rich or the powerful in their privileged citadels. It comes from the direct struggles of the wretched of the earth. Those promise little, but given even less. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, in many ways, that's the strategic point, right, is, you know, while, you know, no matter how important we think it is to sort of convert liberals or to convert, you know, to translate the language of defunding into the language of the middle class, um, the, the, you know, the, the fundamental point is that that's not who was in the streets in Minneapolis, right? That's not who mm -hmm. was Ferguson or Baltimore, that is not who set our world kind of newly into motion in the, in the ways that we're now all reacting to and trying to keep up with. Um, and so I think we, we always also have to be attuned to that 
kind of revolutionary uh, spearhead, as Fanon will put it, you know, when it comes to um, who is, you know, who is in the driver's seat of history when it comes to these questions. Um, and how is it, again, that we can push these things further, not by slowing them down, not by trying to maximize our appeal to the existing sentiments of middle America, mm -hmm. um, you know, but, you know, but by keeping our kind of eyes focused on those experiments happening in, you know, in precisely the most, you know, marginalized, you know, communities, the, the communities that are most vulnerable to not only police violence, but simultaneously and always to, you know, social violence. Absolutely. And this uh, bottom up organizing that, that you describe, um, you offer us a number of different examples. Uh, would you pick one from, you know, from the many that you give us in that chapter? You talk about um, Syria, you talk about South Africa, um, Vietnam, Latin America, um, all of, you know, all of these different places that have been doing this work, are doing this work currently. Um, would you share with us, you know, at least one, one of those examples uh, so that, you know, folks get a better picture of the fact that this isn't, you know, we often think of abolition as something that's happening on the fringe, right? <laughs> so the mainstream this, and then, you know, everybody else, like we're these utopianists uh, who are, you know, somewhere out there, but the way you describe it as happening at a global level, right? So if policing is a global system, you know, the kind of organizing that you're talking about is also happening at a global level. So um, would you mind? Certainly, um, you know, and, and uh, across Latin America for the past three decades, I think what's very interesting is that, of course, you know, for those that are attentive to, I mean, it's global history, but also Latin American history, you have this sort of period of neoliberal structural adjustment where the U.S. and, and global institutions are leaning hard on Latin American governments to minimize their state, right, to cut welfare spending, to cut public employment, to cut subsidies for uh, you know, necessary utilities, water, gas, and, and other things. And, you know, and, and the, you know, and this provokes a, a reaction. That reaction is the swing to the left that we see in Latin America in the 90s and 2000s. Um, uh, an important piece of that story, though, is the fact that minimizing the state and the neoliberal turn in Latin America meant the state in many ways withdrawing from communities, right? Mm -hmm. It actually meant them not providing those resources, not providing those, uh, you know, necessary services, but the sort of like unrecognized uh, advantage of that is that communities started to do it themselves, that they developed, you know, self-sustaining, um, you know, uh, organi organizational frameworks for uh, community water provision, for community gas provision, and at the same time, we're struggling over the higher levels of, uh, you know, of political power. I say that all because it's it's uh, precisely what happens in abandoned communities in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know those communities that are least protected and most vulnerable. Um, again, and, and this gets back to the fundamental question of, of policing, um, and, and it gets back to one of the main points that I want to make, you know, by bringing this international frame into, you know, into uh, you know into the picture, which is that you know we sometimes hear that it's the most vulnerable communities, communities of color, black communities in particular, can't afford abolition. It's too risky. Um, they, because of their, you know, their condition of vulnerability, require the protection of the state um, and of the police. Well, this fundamentally misunderstands the fact that the police do not protect those communities. That you know, those are the communities that are most disadvantaged. 
um, and brutalized by the police that are most looted by the broader system of government that sucks money out of them and pumps that money into uh, the police. Um, and so this argument about risk really you know, fails on its own terms, but then it especially fails when you look at the fact that again, in Venezuela, in parts of Mexico, um, you know, you're looking at people who are living, living in the direst conditions of vulnerability, violence, um, the absolute, you know, uh, you know, most, you know, uh, vulnerable they could possibly be. And it's in those moments precisely that people are saying, you know what, we can do this better uh, ourselves. And so I think about, for example, uh, the self-defense movements, you know, in and around Michoacan in Guerrero in, in South Mexico, where it's not only state violence, it's not only just general violence, but we're talking about the massive brutality and, you know, really quasi-genocide of the drug war which has seen hundreds of thousands of people killed uh, and, and disappeared. And it's in that context that entire communities stood up, um, picked up arms, defended themselves, drove out the drug traffickers and the police. And the reason that they drove out both was precisely the fact that the state uh, you know, and the police were completely enmeshed with the sale of drugs, were completely enmeshed in drug violence. And of course, we know that that's absolutely true in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. That was all fantastic. And I I want to pick up a couple of the different threads that uh, you and Kim just teased out there in my next question, which is essentially to ask you to sort of, and I know that this is in many ways asking like, what's the book about? <laughs> which, is, which is what I'm not trying to do. But, but, you know, if we're talking about words and concepts uh, entering the mainstream and how we're talking about these things, if we're talking about uh, things like resourcing, you know, I'm, I'm very interested to hear sort of what your conception of a strong community is. I think mm-hmm. this is another one of those issues where um, we use this term and these concepts sort of freely and very loosely. And a lot of times we skim over some of these <clears throat> like core tensions and things that we really need to 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 pick apart and examine, um, you know. I, I think that it is more than just making, although I don't want to downplay it, right? Like this is extremely important part of it. Resources are not, uh, you know, everything to building a strong community. Mm-hmm. Some people might hear community and what they think of is like the town that they live in, or maybe they think of their friends and family. Um, and for some people, you know, even including if they're, you know, inside their friend and family groups, those might not be places that feel necessarily mm-hmm. safe. To them, um, yeah, so I, I guess I'm asking, like, what is a strong community community to you beyond institutions and resources? Like, what are the relationships? What is the sort of uh, the the radical reconception of community that you would hope to see in addition to those things? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it's it's really loaded with a whole bunch of, of pieces. Um, one of which is a really important kind of almost like semiotic question of how it is that we're communicating with the world, what it is that we want, right? right. Which I think is a crucial question uh, today. And, you know, I'll start at a sort of at a distance from the question and then try to get back to it. And, and, and I think it'd be obvious why, which is because I, I want to talk a bit about abolition and reconstruction, right? And, you know, as I argue in the book, you know, what... The, the first wave of, of abolition taught us more than anything was that abolition must always be a reconstruction. In other words, and this is something that contemporary abolitionists emphasize, this is a creative project, a project of building a new world. And it's in part through building that world that you make the old world and the old institutions uh, obsolete. 
Um, you know, and, and that's the crucial pairing, I think, that comes out, right? You have the Civil War, you have the attempt at reconstruction, an incredibly ambitious um, attempt to build a radical uh, multiracial, uh, you know, democracy of labor, democracy of workers, as Du Bois uh, emphasizes. That fails. And that is, in fact, destroyed by white terrorism, uh, by the Klan, and by the sort of machinations of, of the political elite. Um, and so there's this rupture between abolition and, and reconstruction um, that, that needs to be, you know, re, you know uh, those need to be rejoined together, of course, uh, in the present. Um, the second piece to say about that moment and, and about those, you know, the languages is that, as, you know, uh, many have uh, emphasized, the abolitionists were fanatics, right? The abolitionists were not downplaying or watering down their language. You know, they were saying, you do not negotiate with evil incarnate, right? You do not try to find a golden mean between slavery uh, and freedom because slavery is an abomination, right? You abolish it, you destroy it. Um, and this is the same language that someone like Marx uses when it comes to, to capitalism. Um, you know, the question of the, you know, abolition of the, the existing uh, order of things. Um, why? Because there's no justification for that or there's no negotiating with it. And, and you know, and this is something that I think we need to uh, uh, bear in mind. This gets right to the question of, you know, how do we, you know, the sort of various, you know, optimism, pessimisms that we have toward the ability to make, you know, to bring such a radical language as abolition into the mainstream. Um, and, and it's worth remembering that that the abolitionists were a fringe minority until the 1850s, until the late 1850s. And it's only through radical action and it's only precisely through their fanaticism through their willingness to embrace the most radical of solutions and the most radical of, of means, right? If we're talking about um, slave resistance, slave rebellions, if we're talking about Harper's Ferry um, and you know the Underground Railroad, um, this is how abolition became mainstream within a very small number of years. It was through the crisis provoked by the direct and radical action of a small number of uh, abolitionists. And we should always bear that in mind, right? Again, pushing back against the idea that we need to seek a language that is more um, appealing to the majority of Americans. This is not how um, what Joel Olson would have called fanatical politics is built. You build it by shifting the very terrain on which those words have their yes. meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Shifting the politics, right? And that's what the abolitionists did. That's what we need to do today. That's what organizations like Critical Resistance have done when it comes to, uh, you know, the prisons. Mm -hmm. Again, this doesn't mean, and, and here to return a bit to the semiotic piece, this doesn't mean that we need to reject any mainstreaming, right? The language of abolition has gone mainstream, like we're now mm -hmm. in that historical moment. And that, I think, requires a lot of scrutiny, a lot of, uh, you know, working of the boundaries of what abolition means or doesn't mean. And, and that's work I think that we're all uh, kind of engaged in. And yes, part of that is to resist the kind of watering down. But at the same time, abolition today is what philosophers call an empty signifier. It's something that different people can plug into because it means totally. something to them. And that is the power of the empty signifier as well as the limitation, right? Um, it's, you know, it, it, you know, when people are like, oh my gosh, everyone's talking about abolition and they're talking about it as meaning this or this, you know, in, in part that's because those are people who would not have been talking about it were it not accessible to them as a language, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what we need to do is kind of leverage that and push it um, in uh, more radical directions. And so this gets to that question of like what, you know, cause some people have said that even abolition and defunding are kind of negative frames when what we want to describe is is resourcing of communities 
Um, and I, on the one hand, completely get that. I get the fact that it points as well toward the positive project um, of reconstruction of those communities. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I hesitate to say that we need to, uh, you know, weaken our language um, mm -hmm. in an attempt to appeal to communities, because I think it's possible to say uh, at the same time, yes, we need resources, but that's what abolition means. Like, yes, we need resources, but that's why we need to destroy the institutions that are sucking up those resources. Mm -hmm. That's all a big circular way of getting back to your question, which is actually about the strength of, uh, you know, the strength of communities. And, and I'd like to, you know, argue, and I do argue in the book that I think deep down we know what abolition looks like, right? Because we don't call the police in every mm -hmm. moment of our lives. I mean, maybe some of us do, I hope not. Um, we don't call the police on our family, you know, members if we can avoid it. We don't necessarily call the police on our neighbors and loved ones if we can, you know, avoid it. Um, and, uh, you know, we we try and engage in different strategies of de-escalation, of support, um, because we see those people as valuable, right? Either as family members or community members. And that's precisely uh, what a strong community looks like. The question is really, how do you scale that up? Absolutely. And it starts... And it can start on the on the very local level, right? Uh, developing a network with your neighbors so that if the police come around, you all can get a message that says, the police are here, keep an eye on them. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The flip side of that is that sort of by doing that and in the process of doing that, you've also built a network that is that can be used to prevent internal community violence, right? Mm -hmm. That can be used to like complex domestic violence that can help, you know, provide safety for, you know, for neighbors when they need it. And all of that without calling the police, right? And again, that's what, you know, that's what many people do uh, instinctively. That's what many people do that, you know, you know, in communities that know that they cannot rely on the police or that the police won't come even if they call. Um, and so that's something that happens all over the, pl the place already. And the question is, how do you build that into a system that allows for, uh, you know, again, the community self-defense, um, you know, the, the, the defense of that community in a way that is directly responsive and organically rooted in the community. Now, of course, and, you know, and certainly when I was writing the book, I wasn't thinking all that much about reactionary communities, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I was definitely thinking about, you know, for example, the, you know, the, you know, persistence of, you know, misogyny and, you know, domestic violence um, and other forms of social violence and sexual assault in poor communities, in communities of color. Um, but, you know, as people have raised since, like you've got entire sectors of this country where, you know, what goes by the name of community is, you know, you know, is fundamentally and in its essence reactionary. Right. And I guess my response to that is that, you know, those are not the communities that I think concern us or, you know, concern us certainly in the productive way of, of, of community building. I don't care about sort of direct democracy, you know, on the country club you know, and in the, you know, in the retirement community. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a question of, of, again, it's a question of what forces are going to be the leading forces in this struggle moving forward. Um, and again, to be clear, even there, we don't need to glorify community, right? We need to right. precisely because the whole point is that there is violence in communities, that there right. is misogyny in communities, that there are economic inequalities in communities. So that when, for example, in, in Philly in the 70s, when this organization CLASP was developed, you know, uh, it, it, you know, was a really good example of what a real grassroots community watch um, could look like that is not modeled on the police, 
Um, but you all always need to be aware of the fact that, you know, that these police logics creep in. Um, I mean, and a lot of people, I think, you know, would, would know this from their own experience on the block, right? There are, you know, you may live in a poor community, you may live in a community of color, but you, you know, uh, will also notice very quickly and clearly that there are segmentations, that there are ideological differences, that there are people who consider themselves homeowners and who are against the apartment dwellers. You know, there are people who uh, don't want any uh, drug users in the community and over, you know, and, and scrutinize them mm -hmm. and surveil them, right? Or don't want homeless people around. Um, and those are the kind of logics that we need to, in any community, uh, you know, push back on because that's not the kind of strong community that we're talking about. Absolutely. As you were saying that, and I was thinking about this this morning uh, when I was prepping uh, for for our conversation. Um, I know you saw the news like I did with that you know tragedy in uh, Fairmount where 13 okay. people uh, died in a house fire in a section eight in section eight housing. Um, and for those that are unfamiliar with Fairmount in Philly. Um, can you describe a little bit about, you know, that community? I mean, I used to live up there. So it, this uh, fire was like two, three blocks around the corner from where I used to live. Wow. And, you know, and I, as I'm watching the, you know, the reporters talk about, you know, this community on whatever channel I was watching, you know, they didn't really have much analysis all they could say was basically they were rattling off all of the local businesses that were in the area. I kid you not. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, can we put this in context of a community that has been gentrified? Absolutely. And these are the very people that they would oppose living there. Right. Mm -hmm. So the conversation is shifted from, my gosh, this is tragic or within the context of the same conversation. Oh, this is a really tragic, horrific event where, you know, all of these people lost their lives um, to one where it's like, well, why were so many people living in one house together? Right? <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? And, and it's like and I'm like, OK, what? You know, and I'm sitting there screaming. And as you were talking about this, okay, what does our vision of community really mean? Because while the neighbors are outside being interviewed by the police, mostly white people, you know, it's, oh my God, this is so horrible. And, you know, and it is horrible. Um, these are also the same people who don't want Section 8 housing That's in right. their now gentrified community. Now we can call it a fair amount or whatever the hell we want to call it. But, you know, to me, that area was North Philly. You know, it's like, <laughs> I've lived here. Yeah, well, not even not even Section 8 housing, but PHA housing, right? I was, PHA, actually, I, was actually surprised, I was actually surprised that there was much left, you know, in, you know, in the area that, that, that is called. I, I, I was actually mm -hmm. surprised. And, you know, especially on on that particular street where, where yeah. this happened. But um, I don't know. I think that I lost my point there. I wanted to. <laughs> no, I mean, but whatever. It's also, I just need to get that off my chest. Thank this you. This constantly comes up, though. And for people that didn't follow the story, this is public housing in which apparently the fire, the, the smoke detectors were not operational um, mm -hmm. you know, as a result of neglect, um, where, of course, you know, large numbers of people were living because it's an incredibly you know, expensive area to live in now, one of the most rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods in, in, in all of Philadelphia, but which is really, you know, as you put it, you know, Kim, uh, directly adjacent to some of the, you know, poorest and, and most, you know, dangerous parts of North Philly, um, just behind Girard College, right? And we're, you know, all, you know, it's really not that far. Um, and as a result of that, and, you know, and even going back decades, 
Fairmount was a, you know, sort of racial flashpoint. Um, yeah. um, on Fairmount Ave, the Black Panthers, you know, established a house in the 70s for welfare mothers, as they put it, um, to be housed in. And immediately white supremacists went and shot up the whole front of, of mm -hmm. that building in the in the 1970s. And even up to the present, you know, that was back when it was a sort of more uh, working class white neighborhood, um, you know, you know, coming up against uh, a poor black neighborhood to the north. Um, and now it's a fully gentrified, you know, vast majority white neighborhood that still to this day, as far as I know, and certainly until very recently, um, had what's called white Halloween, where they would celebrate Halloween not on the day um, because they didn't want to encourage uh, black teenagers from other parts of the neighborhood, you know, coming into their, you know, what they saw as their their neighborhood. And so this has always been, you know, something that's going on. And what you see in these situations is incredibly tragic because you're right, the narrative does get turned around. And if it's not the, why were so many people living there? It's so, well, what, what did they do? Did they deactivate the smoke detectors? Or it's the incredibly tragic stories that you hear about, um, you know, about fires lit by candles. Um, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and, or, I mean, and, the first thing that you realize is that the person doesn't have electricity in the house. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. The first thing that came to mind to me, and this is something that, you know, I witnessed growing up in Southwest Philadelphia, was, you know, people just having their ovens yes, open. Yes, I was going to say. Keep their houses warm. Right. You know, and it, I mean, we don't know. It's still too early to to know. But I was just noting the way that this was being framed as, you know, in, in terms of victim blaming. Right. Like, why were so many of them living together? There were 18 people in the unit upstairs and, you know, however many people living uh, in the unit downstairs. And it's like we're in the middle of a global pandemic. There are no stimulus checks as shitty as they were. There are no mm -hmm. stimulus checks coming. There's no pandemic unemployment benefit or, you know, anything of the sort. The state has completely abandoned people and people are just doing the best that they can to survive. So while we see city officials, you know, out there crying uh, during their press conferences, what does that translate to in terms of everyone else in Philadelphia and in other communities around the country um, that are, you know, dealing with the same kind of issues and the same kind of problems? Where's Where is the... Where's the support? Where's the shift? Where's the change going to come from? Anyway. Um, yeah, no, and I, and I mean, this is, I mean, it's, I was going to say it's a tangent, but it's not really a tangent, which is that white supremacy is fundamentally built on victim blaming. Um, and that goes all the way back to, you know, slavery, that goes all the way back to colonialism. Um, and, and it goes to the, the fact that, you know, and, and it's deeply embedded in, in the sort of white supremacist and sort of violent white nationalism of the present that sees itself as fighting back against this sort of great replacement or fighting back against the sort of, you know, the, the you know, the shooter in, you know, in, in Texas who killed a bunch of, uh, you know, Latinx people in, in a Walmart said he was fighting against a Hispanic invasion. And you're like, what is it in Texas that makes you think that this is your territory being taken by someone, you know, whose family has lived there for millennia, right? Um, and yet this is fundamentally how U.S. imperialism, white supremacy, um, you know, you know, always function, which is that white people are always pure, and always the victims of the aggression of those that they victimize and brutalize every day. And of course, this is why, and you know, this is why the language of the, the so-called war on police never ceases to emerge in these moments when there is no, no demographic on earth that has seen less war, uh, you know, enacted upon it um, than the police. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Um, I want to just make a couple of quick points before we move on, because I know uh, we're going to wrap it up shortly. But, um, you know, going back to something that you mentioned earlier around uh, language and uh, kind of de-radicalizing language, it seems to be used when we're trying to appeal to certain groups. You know, I just wanted to say that it's not that uh, in a subpeeve, again, maybe I am just on tangents today and that's just where I need to be. But you know, abolition doesn't have a marketing or PR problem. <laughs> that's not that's yeah. not where we need to be. That we need to focus on what is actually the issue instead of trying to make, you know, um, our language more palatable. That kind of tone policing uh, mm-hmm. is is not useful. But um, also something that you write about in the book around, um, you know, we've been talking about the chapter on self defense and abolition. Um, the kind of seeming contradictions between, you know, between the two. How can we talk about armed self-defense and, you know, abolition in the same breath? And I'd love for you to to touch on that, um, you know, if you can, or if you would. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good question. Um, it's certainly one that reveals, I think, some, you know, some fault lines within, you know, abolitionism. Um, and because, again, you know, as I already said, there's a there's a sort of kind of abolitionist uh, language that, again, as I put it, as, assumes that the that the community is good and perfect, and that all you do is withdraw the police. Uh, you know, you know, for for sort of philosophy heads, this is very much reminiscent of what what Foucault critiques in in, in what he calls Freud's uh, you know repressive hypothesis. Um, um, and you know, the idea is that you know we, but the reality is that we are shaped by all these forces. The reality is that the community itself is deeply imbued, you know, with um, capitalist logic, with misogynist logic, with the logic uh, of the police, with the mindset of policing. Um, and we know that, you know, and and I think it's more. I mean, communities certainly know that, and and I think uh, it's very often. You know the case that that you know someone the abolitionist left want to kind of deny that reality, um, and it's a reality that implies taking seriously again taking seriously the fact that these are vulnerable communities that there are specific people in those communities that are particularly vulnerable and that something needs to be done to rebuild a sense of safety and, and a sense of security uh, you know for communities um, and you know for those people um, and again we want to be clear that we're not you know engaging in a kind of nonsense that assumes that sort of any sort of armed uh, you know person is the same as any other armed person you know, abolitionists draw deeply and heavily on the long trajectory and the long history of Black revolutionary self-defense movements. Um, there's nothing, you know, in the, even in the, in the most sort of pacifist elements of the civil rights movement, like Martin Luther King, we're talking about someone who had an arsenal of weapons for defense because he knew that the movements required that defense in order to be built um, and in order to, to uh, ultimately survive. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is a categorical distinction that says that and a, an outside professional force of uniformed violence workers has no place in these communities. That doesn't mean that the community can't take care of itself. Although, of course, you know, we need to be very careful about how we do that. Although, of course, our sort of uh, objective should be for as organic, as participatory, as democratic a structure um, of self-defense as, as we could possibly build. Um, this again, this is what you know many communities have done. This is what, for example, the Zapatistas in southern Mexico have done, which is not to eliminate armed force, but to democratize it, 
to make sure that everyone is capable of participating in a direct way in keeping themselves safe, both from the government, both from the government and, you know, sort of uh, foreign imperialist powers, but also from the kind of plagues within communities that lead to and generate uh, the perceived need for the police. Now, I wanted to, uh, I, I think that this is a really important chapter um, in the text as well. I mean, they're all important, but I also want you to talk about the project of abolishing the police and that of abolishing borders as being part of a single project. Um, because the people don't often see, uh, some people, let's just say, don't often see that connection. So can you, um, can you enlighten us? Certainly. No, uh, I think seen from a historical perspective, you know, one of the things that I want to, to argue and insist upon is that, um, the, is that policing is synonymous with, um, global imperialism. In other words, the projection of U.S. power abroad, which actually plays several different forms of policing functions. But policing was also historically synonymous with the expansion of the U.S., with Manifest Destiny, with the westward push and the southward push of the border itself. Um, and, you know, and, and that process was built upon the very same kind of two uh, pieces um, that we see uh, in the history of, of uh, you know, uh, slavery and policing in the United States, which is the simultaneity of, on the one hand, uniformed official um, police and the self-deputized white mob. Um, this is the kind of, uh, you know, two, you know, two legs, uh, you know, of one one kind of process that, you know, that sees the expansion, that sees the seizure of, of Texas, for example. The Texas Rangers, I always like to point to, because this is basically a you know a white supremacist posse um, that engages in not only the process of you know first uh, you know seizing occupying territory white settlers taking over the southwest and then provoking a war and then after the war and after the U.S. annexation of the southwest um, dispossessing uh, you know Mexican communities and Mexican families of their land for white settlement this is all you know, hand in hand with policing. Um, and, and we need to understand that. We don't need to look very far back though to, to, to really see that. And, and part of what I wanna draw out, part of what Dan Denver also drew out in, in his book um, on all American nativism uh, is the fact that the two struggles, right? We're talking about the struggle at the Southern border and, you know, of, you know, against US imperialism um, toward the South and the struggle against white supremacy and slavery within the US have always been bound together. They've always been defined by migrations, for example, you know, the migration um, across the border, but also the great migration northward. Those migrations have always provoked new fault lines and new white supremacist struggles and in uh, movements. Um, and the struggle against them has always met the same barriers. So, you know, if we're looking at near history, we're looking at the, the Clintons and their absolutely, you know, demonic role um, in uh you know, reinforcing, of course, white supremacy and mass incarceration. And we all talk about the omnibus crime bill of the 1990s, but we don't, you know, always talk about the fact that that went hand in hand with NAFTA and it went hand in hand with the reinforcement and militarization of the southern border um, in, you know, in, you know, knowing full well that the consequences of NAFTA would be mass uh, migration. So you had the simultaneous criminalization of migrants trying to cross the border um, at, at the same time that you had the criminalization of you know, those marked communities within, uh, you know, within the U.S. Uh, territory happening at exactly the same time. Um, and, you know, when we look at the border itself, um, we see um, that these resonances and these echoes are uh, just as profound. Um, you had Du Bois uh, talking about, and, you know, and even many others at the time talking about this myth 
that emerged around, you know, arguments for abolition or for the abolition of slavery that said, oh, well, if you abolish slavery, then that will hurt the white worker. And this was always a fundamental lie. It was a lie in the sense that the, you know, what was driving down labor conditions, what was driving down wages was the institution of slavery, not the individuals. And that by abolishing the institution of slavery, there would be an overall upward you know, pressure on wages because suddenly everyone would be paid a uh, a wage, um, and yet this lie was very effective, right? It led to mass race riots by poor white workers against you know against black freedmen in the north in particular. Um, the same exact argument is made today about the border. This idea that the border protects U.S. workers um, again, this gets back to the logic of who is the working class, right? If it's the small privileged or relatively, I should say, privileged sectors of unionized workers. Um, you're talking about a tiny, uh, a tiny horizon for your political imagination. Uh, but if you understand the working class as global, as transnational, um, then you've got, you know, uh, something I think far more uh, interesting, far more, you know, and, and you know, far more opportune to be, you know, to be uh, looking forward to. Um, the border today does not drive down uh, wages. It's the policing of the border. It's the policing of marked communities, undocumented communities that, um, you know, that drives down uh, the wages and, the, and the, the, the working conditions of the working class as a whole. Um, and, you know, part of the argument is precisely that. And we, we did see this already emerging in these sort of Occupy and Abolish ICE movements and in the deepening uh, relationships that have been built between migrant movements and Black Lives Matter movements, which is absolutely essential. Um, and it's the fact that, you know, we're looking at something far beyond uh, this border. We're looking at solidarities that are being built um, that recognize that it's through the abolition of the border that we can build, um, you know, this broader uh, working class vision. And just like the police, which you know, uh, you know, who claim to prevent violence that they themselves create and produce, the same goes for the border. Um, there is drug violence on the border because it is a border, because it is in, in the institution of the border that you create this profitability and this wage gap that, you know, I mean, it's not this wage gap, this profitability gap that creates opportunities for black market activity, for violence, for trafficking of people, for trafficking of drugs and weapons. None of that exists without the border. Um, and so in the same breath that we're talking about abolishing the police and abolishing prisons, we also need to be talking about abolishing, of course, migrant detention, which is incredibly, uh, you know, rapid in its in its increase, in its expansion. And we need to be talking about abolishing not only ICE, which should be a no brainer. ICE is a new institution um, that didn't exist until very recently, 20 years ago. Um, but we should also need to be talking about abolishing Border Patrol and, and abolishing the border that, you know, it has upheld. Just like, you know, uh, slavery, just like abolition, uh, you know, where these institutions become naturalized and we forget that they're very recent. We need to remember that the border really, in, in all, for all intents and purposes, there was no border until 100 years ago. Before that, there was a line in the sand with very little meaning. We need to go back to that. Hell yeah. Thank you for that. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Let me put it to you. Is there anything you know, any core messages, any takeaways for people who are listening, who maybe have not picked up this book, anything we haven't discussed today that you think um, is really crucial to get out there? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of pieces that, that, are, that are important. The one thing I think that needs to be said in terms of context, and I sort of pointed to this earlier, is that, again, we're living through a counterinsurgent moment where every, you know, every talking head, every media outlet, every government official is trying to tell us that not only is abolition, you know, a, a pipe dream, but even defunding is not going to happen. 
That is not what we were thinking a year and a half ago. That was not the tone. That was not the tenor. And so we need to recognize that the reason people are saying this is because they're still scared of the power of these movements. Um, and it's through the activation and the reactivation of our movements. And it's through the sustained pressure that we can begin to build back toward those possibilities that were certainly um, on the tips of everyone's tongues in, in June 2020. Yes. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. This was um, wonderful. Yes, I very much enjoyed so much. it. Yeah, no, this is a great conversation, and it's it's you know, been great to really sort of chop these things up with you all. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes, and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.